Welcome to the Daily Dive Weekend Edition. I'm Oscar Ramirez, and every week I explore the top stories making waves in the news and some that are just plain interesting. I'll connect you with the journalists and the people who know the story and bring you news without the noise so you can make an informed decision. You can catch a new episode of the Daily Dive every Monday through Friday, and it's ready when you wake up. On the Weekend Edition, I'll be bringing you some of the best stories from the week. With the pandemic continuing to rage on, it's time for a pandemic reality check. We're getting further away from the end than we should be. To be clear, it's nowhere near as bad as it was at the height of the pandemic. But once again, numbers are trending in the wrong way. Infections are going up. Hospitalizations and deaths are going up. And in some places like L.A. County, mask restrictions are being reimposed. For more on where we are in the pandemic, we'll speak to Joel Achenbach, science reporter at The Washington Post. So just a couple of months ago, I wrote a story in The Post saying, hey, everyone, it's now okay to discuss as a concept the end of the pandemic. And that's because there were models coming out showing that the numbers might get really low in the summer in terms of the number of infections and hospitalizations and deaths and all that. And the numbers did go that direction for many weeks there, and including globally, that things were trending better. But the Delta variant did not help at all. It is definitely more transmissible. And what happened with the vaccinations, they kind of ran out of some of the momentum as people who are reluctant to get vaccinated for whatever reason have not gotten their shots. And so what you have is you have a very still a very large cohort of people who are susceptible to the virus and you have a more contagious virus. So the picture here at the, you know, in late July is not as good as, as I thought it would be and as some experts thought it would be just a couple of months ago. And so uh, we got to kind of reframe where we are in this pandemic. Yeah, definitely. I totally agree. You know, I live in Los Angeles. So Los Angeles County this past week announced that they had to reinstate indoor mask requirements for everybody. This is regardless of what your vaccination status is. And, you know, these are the things that nobody wants to go back to. And, and nobody's arguing for much more than that right now, it seems like. But the public health officials say nothing is off the table. You know, that's always kind of the thing. And and that's kind of one of the troubling spots. There's people that have been vaccinated say, well, I don't want to go back to it because people aren't getting vaccinated. But these are the worries. These are the precautions that health officials take. And that's what we don't want. But we're starting to see it again. Yeah. It, look, it's, you know, putting the mask back on is, is a drag. No one wants to do it. You know, the problem is we're still in the middle of a public health emergency. I mean, the emergency definitely got dialed down once we got the vaccines out to a large part of the population. Let's not exaggerate the fact that, I mean, although things are trending in the wrong direction, it's still a lot better than it was in the winter, you know, better than it was in January. Definitely. There is a lot of truth to the idea that we have kind of two parallel pandemics. Uh, We have a bad pandemic for the unvaccinated and one that is less threatening to life for the rest of us. So I've been vaccinated and I'm not concerned that I'm going to get COVID and die. And I think people who are who have some immunity, some protection, should understand that the worst case scenario is less likely. You know, there's no guarantees in life. And people who are vaccinated, some people still do die of COVID. They may have an underlying condition. The long-term scenario, which we tried to get into in this article, is that you can build up immunity in a population and a virus like SARS-CoV-2 should over time gradually become more 
like the flu or even a bad cold, which is what happened with the 1918 influenza virus. But we're not there yet. It's still circulating in a, a population that has many, many people who are have no immunity. There are people who may have had some immunity from the initial wave of infections more than a year ago. How much immunity do, do they still have? I mean, I uh, we don't know, but reinfection is a possibility. Other coronaviruses, after a year, you can get reinfected. Their antibodies wane. And so I think we're going to be dealing with this for a while. And the one thing that like every single health official has said to me is, you know, we need more vaccinations out there. We need to do better at the population scale. And then at the individual scale, yeah, I I think some of us are going to have to rethink whether we want to eat indoors in a crowded place. You know, how do we feel about events with lots of other people there? I, you know, personally, I'm okay if it's outdoors, but I, you know, even though I'm vaccinated, with the numbers going up, I think it's time to be a little more cautious and to, to be prudent about it. Right. And even for those that are vaccinated, right, uh, everybody says that's kind of the key that we're hoping to get those rates up. There have been some breakthrough infections, but thankfully for those people, they're spared the most severe cases of this. And, uh, you know, the CDC, I think, is only tracking these breakthrough infections if it gets bad enough where you have to go to the hospital. So the majority of people aren't getting it that bad after they've been vaccinated, at least. That's the that's the good news. That, that's right. And so that's another really big wild card here, which is those of us who are vaccinated, what are the odds that we will get infected anyway and infected enough that we actually are symptomatic and symptomatic enough that we need hospitalization? I think People need to know that the vaccines are great, but they don't make you totally bulletproof. I mean, they, the vaccine has, you know, some of these, these variants, they can evade some of the antibodies. I think the Delta, that is more contagious. I mean, there's the Delta, there's the Beta, there's the Gamma. The Beta and the Gamma, I know, have some mutations that enable it to evade the antibodies a little bit. I, I'm not sure about the Delta, but it's, you know, as this is going on, you want to be prudent even if you've been vaccinated, yeah. I think, because also you don't, want to, you don't want to be a vector for spreading the virus to someone else right. who isn't vaccinated and who, who could have a bad outcome. Yeah, well, I mean, you know, these are the reality checks that are happening right now. Things have gotten so much better than at, at the height of this whole thing, but it's not over yet. So we still need to keep pushing forward on all of this. Joel Achenbach, science reporter at The Washington Post. Thank you very much for joining us. Thanks for having me. This week, we also got numbers on U.S. life expectancy. Largely driven by the pandemic, drug overdoses, and homicides, U.S. life expectancy fell by 1.5 years in 2020. This is the biggest decline since World War II. The group that fared the worst were Hispanic men who had a drop of 3.7 years. Life expectancy is an important number because it is a measure of the nation's well-being and prosperity. For more on this big drop, we'll speak to Betsy McKay, senior writer at the Wall Street Journal. Well, first of all, so yes, the U.S. life expectancy fell by a year and a half, 1.5 years. And that's the largest drop in generations. I mean, basically since the middle of World War Two, just to put it in perspective, normally life expectancy changes by like a tenth of a year or two tenths of a year. So this is huge. And three quarters of it is basically due to the pandemic. I mean, there were 385,000 deaths last year. Many researchers and public health officials argue that a lot of those deaths were preventable, but nonetheless, they were deaths. 
so we would have had just with COVID alone, we would have had a drop in life expectancy. Then you throw on top of it a 30% increase in deaths from drug overdoses, rising homicides in inner cities, and a couple other factors. One was chronic liver disease, which is from heavy, heavy alcohol use. So it's a pretty, pretty bleak picture for 2020 with a lot of factors going on. And many of them were, were in fact, tied uh, to the COVID yeah. pandemic itself. Why is life expectancy important as a number? How do we use that as a measure of how well the country is doing? It's based on mortality in a given year. How many people died and, you know, the ages they were. Obviously, someone who dies younger, is, that's more lost years of life. And then ultimately, it's a measure of a nation's health and well-being and prosperity. I mean, wealthy nations have growing life expectancy. People live longer. They live healthier lives. They get better health care. They live in safer, cleaner environments, clean water, clean air, you know. And so when there are declines in an advanced nation, that's really a sign of societal problems or catastrophic events. Throughout the pandemic, we saw a lot of people skipping treatment or whatever it is, you know, diabetes, high blood pressure, these are going to have long-term effects that we'll see later on. Tell us who fared the worst in all of this. As I mentioned, Hispanic men had a, a particularly sharp dip on this. In general, Hispanic and Black populations fared disproportionately. White populations also not, not so great, but Hispanic men, it really stands out. They're life expectancy declined by 3.7 years. So if you think that the national average was 1.5 years, for them, 3.7. The explanations are a couple. One, obviously, the COVID-19 pandemic that the CDC estimated that 90% of the decline for the Hispanic population was due to COVID. Many people work in jobs that put them at increased risk of exposure, right? Frontline jobs, service. They were out there working in person during the height of these surges, and while others were working remotely and, and much safer. And then many families live in multi-generational homes, more right. crowded conditions where it's harder to isolate after you've been infected and the disease spreads faster. The other factor is that many of the Hispanic people who died were younger, and so that affected their life expectancy. Yeah, when we're seeing a lot of rising cases, a lot of it was attributed to families living in these multi-generational homes. And as you mentioned, everybody's out and about having to go out and work. The exposure was high for a lot of them. The pandemic did take a greater toll on life expectancy in the U.S. than other advanced nations as well as, as what we're seeing in some of the data, too. Yeah, I spoke with a researcher who did a study, published a study about a month ago, kind of projecting what U.S. life expectancy was for 2020 and comparing how the U.S. fared against other peer countries, advanced, you know, high-income nations in life expectancy between 2018 and 2020. What he found was that the other countries, they certainly were affected by the pandemic, but on average, life expectancy decreased by 0.2, so a fifth of a year, basically. And in some countries, New Zealand, for example, life expectancy rose last year. So we are definitely an outlier. And this is kind of furthering a trend with the point he made in his, in his piece. It's furthering a trend that has been going on for years in which the gap between life expectancy in the U.S. and peer countries is widening. Ours is getting worse while theirs continues to improve. Definitely. And then, as you mentioned in the article, too, birth rates are lower. 
here in the United States uh, than they were. You know, we thought we were going to get a big baby boom throughout the pandemic, and that didn't pan out also. So just a lot of things to think about as far as how the pandemic has affected us here in the United States. Betsy McKay, senior writer at The Wall Street Journal. Thank you very much for joining us. Thank you for having me. Looking to jobs in the economy, we're all hoping for a speedy recovery. But the restaurant industry has been having a hard time coming back after the pandemic. Each month so far this year, about 5% of restaurant and hospitality workers have quit their jobs, largely due to low pay, no benefits, and rude customers. There are currently 1.2 million jobs unfilled in the industry, despite rising wages and signing bonuses. Throughout the pandemic, hospitality workers have had a chance to reassess their lives and their current working conditions. For more on all of this, we'll speak to Alina Seljuk, business correspondent at NPR. All of these things you named are exactly the factors that people who have long worked in the restaurant industry, but also just in food in general, fast food, all types of bars as well, all types of food establishments they have been thinking about. There are multiple factors that all came together, I would say. You know, the pandemic shuttered a lot of restaurants and for the first time, workers kind of had that quiet moment, as you're saying, it's, you know, when you talk to workers in restaurants, they will tell you how crazy of a mad rush that job can be. And so for many of them, those, you know, week or two when they were, when the restaurants were closed, gave them that sort of moment of quiet to think about the realities of their work. The workers I've talked to will talk about how hostile and aggressive their bosses can be, how insane the hours are, how few breaks they get. Someone I know was saying they started smoking just to get five minutes off work to get that break, to have that moment to themselves. Pretty intense scenarios. And then on top of all of that, the major reason survey after survey shows the major reason people have been leaving this industry is low pay. And add to all of that, on top of all of that, (laughs) you've got this reopening. And as you're pointing out, people are showing up at restaurants and someone called it where we've gone feral. Like, you know, the diners are extremely impatient. And so when you have a restaurant already operating on a skeleton crew, then you add these rude customers. People are really on edge. Testy customers have become sort of the final straw for a lot of people. All that to say, when I started looking at numbers, it paints a pretty dire picture. The rates of people quitting food, restaurants and bars are at the highest in decades. As you noted in the article, in May alone, 706,000 people left the industry. You know, it's happening all the time. And, And this is at the very exact moment that everybody wants to indulge in those very same things right now. We all are over the pandemic. We want to get back out there. Economies are, you know, cities and states, everything's opening right now. And we want to go back to that normal stuff. And we expect that same level of service that we had before. And unfortunately, a lot of restaurants just can't keep up. Like you mentioned, they're working on these skeleton crews. They're hiring new people. It takes time for people to catch up. And and we've seen stories too about bad reviews going up on Yelp and other places like that because people are complaining that the restaurants just aren't up to it just yet. And that's a tough part right there. And just another word about sort of just how critical the wage element is in all of this. A lot of people who have quit have been asked 
you know, why they quit over the course of the pandemic. And a lot of them said their coworkers died during the pandemic. It's a big health concern. So that's, of course, a major issue. People will talk about hostility at work from managers or coworkers or customers. But at the end of the day, kind of on top of it all, the wage matter, the low pay that the industry has been plagued with for years. I just want to note about it. We kind of assess, you know, if you look at the pay rates starting a decade ago, which was a bit over $10 an hour, which is average hourly pay for people who are not managers, not supervisors within restaurants and bars. That pay went from just above $10 to $15.14, the first time over $15. This just happened in May. That's actual dollars. But if you look at the value of those dollars, if you sort of took the value of the dollars from 2011 and fast forwarded it to today, in those 2011 dollars, the 1514 is really worth $12.39 an hour. And that's your average wage sort of adjusted to inflation. Yeah. And we're seeing a lot of restaurants right now offering a lot more entry level positions can be from 11 to even $17 an hour in some cases in certain areas, right? You're not everywhere, but that's right. how desperate a lot of these businesses are getting. Uh, you talk to a lot of restaurant workers and former restaurant workers, you know, how are they navigating all of this? Because a lot of them have probably moved on to other industries. Some of them might be going back to this. Just tell us some of the stories that you were covering on this. It kind of ran the gamut. I've spoken to some folks who left and then got a job back within food service at another place, but for much more money because the wages are starting to go up again. I say again, because they dipped during the pandemic. Then there were a number of people who just said, forget it. I'm never doing this again. I thought about it during the pandemic. And now there's this moment for me to get a job somewhere else. I want a better schedule. I want benefits. That's another thing. There are no benefits in most places within food service in the United States. You don't get health care benefits. You don't get paid time off. And so people have gone on to work at warehouses, delivery factories. None of these jobs are easy, but many of them found better benefits and better pay in all of them. And a lot of the sort of the local Facebook groups, that's, there's one I pointed out that's been playing out in Kentucky, but there's a version of that in a lot of places where these job postings are going up and the hiring people, the employers will point out, we can't Here's a wage we can pay. And if it's under $15, a lot of the workers will sort of start jeering and saying, you've got to pay better. And then the employers will get defensive and will say, well, we can't really afford to pay more. And this line that I heard a lot now is, if you can't afford to pay a living wage, you can't afford to be in business. So there's sort of this new refrain that's popping up a lot more this day and age because there is this sort of labor dynamic where so many people have left the industry that I think right now nationwide, the latest data show, there are 1.2 or close to 1.3 million unfilled openings within hospitality. Yeah, I mean, it seems like it's the trend that's going to be continuing for a little while. And, you know, who knows how it will even out. And as I mentioned, at a time when a lot of consumers want to go back to these places, these businesses themselves just don't have enough employees. So we'll continue to monitor all of that. Alina Seljuk, business correspondent at NPR. Thank you very much for joining us. Thanks for having me. Don't forget to join us on social media at Daily Dive Pod on Twitter and Daily Dive Podcast on Facebook. Leave us a comment, give us a rating, 
and tell us the stories that you're interested in. Follow us on iHeartRadio or subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. I'm Oscar Ramirez, and this is the Daily Dive Weekend Edition.